Hey there, everybody. This is Michelle Ann Olson, and you are listening to Are You Afraid of the Bark, the podcast that goes bark in the night. Welcome, my listeners, my favorite people, and happy Halloween. Happy All Hallows Eve. Happy Day of the Dead. In my opinion, just the best holiday there is. And I am so pleased that you would join some of it with me listening to this podcast. What does your Halloween have in store for you? Are you watching scary movies? Finishing The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix? I am dressing up as Ursula the Sea Witch from The Little Mermaid, and I'm going to be teaching children about all of the real-life monsters that live in the deep ocean. I'm talking ghost sharks. I'm talking goblin sharks, vampire squids, coffin fish. I can't think of a better way to spend my Halloween. Now, speaking of the chilling adventures of... Sabrina. It's this new show on Netflix based on the graphic novels in the Archie sort of Riverdale, Greendale universe. It comes on the heels of the popularity of Riverdale, this like darker take of the Archie comics. I have been consuming this show like crazy. I love it. It's a total pleasant surprise. I love the acting. I love the storylines, the characters, it's moody and dark and darkly funny and over the top. It's also got this fight to it. Sabrina, the main character, is just such a wonderfully feminist character, questioning the authority figures, the men in her life at every turn, and questioning why the status quo is and why things can't be better for her, her family and her friends. It's dark it's much more occult than I expected. I'm used to like the 90s Sabrina the Teenage Witch, right? TGIF and the puppet Salem with the sassy comebacks. The Netflix show is nothing like that, but it is really good. I'm really enjoying it. And there's no doubt that it helped inform my topic for this Halloween episode. This topic is witchcraft or witches and animals. The way in which these two things intersect the way in which historically they have been associated with one another. So let us start this exploration of animals and witchcraft with that which is perhaps most familiar to us. And this is the very idea of the familiar, the familiar spirit or animal guide. And just a quick note that a lot of this information that I'm going to be talking about in the episode today is coming from European folklore, from sort of the medieval period, a lot of this information coming from witch trials. So just note that there's going to be a focus here due to the nature of my sources on the European tradition. So in this tradition, European folklore, familiar spirits were believed to be supernatural entities who would assist witches in their practice of magic. So according to beliefs from the medieval and early modern periods, these familiars could appear in numerous forms, but most often as an animal, and they were described as, quote, clearly defined three-dimensional forms 
vivid with color and animated with movement and sound, end quote. So these were not ghosts. These were tangible beings. Often, sometimes they took human form or humanoid form, but most often taking the form of an animal, but not to be confused with ghosts who had, quote, smoky, undefined forms, end quote. So familiars existed, as far as the records show, tangibly in our world. Familiars have this sort of dual history, depending on who they were serving. So in stories in which they serve witches, they're thought to be malevolent, and then the other side of the coin to the witch is a cunning person who maybe has an understanding of sort of natural magic healing, but who is not seen as working in conjunction with the devil. If a familiar was working for cunning folk, they were thought to be benevolent. So there are two sides of the coin to the person casting magic and two sides of the coin to the familiar that might be serving them. In terms of the animal familiar serving the witch, they were categorized as demons who had taken a natural form, and their main purpose was to serve a witch, especially a young witch, and to provide protection and guidance for them as they came into their new powers. As I mentioned before, a lot of the information in this episode is coming from historical records of witch trials, because this is one of the few places in which accused witches were, you know, allowed to speak about this kind of thing. Familiar spirits had certain identifying and unifying traits. A historian named Emma Wilby describes that in most testimonies about the familiar, they have a certain orderliness and naturalism, despite the fact that these are thought to have been, to be supernatural entities, possibly demons, they ultimately take the form of these very recognizable animals. Anything from cats to rats, dogs, ferrets, birds, frogs, toads, and hares. Even cases of wasps, butterflies, pigs, sheep, and horses. So the familiar spirits were very much appearing to be from the natural world. So they were kept in the witch's home in pots or baskets lined with sheep's wool for warmth and they were fed milk, bread, meat, or blood. This historian, Emma Wilby, goes on to say that the spirits also almost always had names and, quote, were often given down-to-earth and frequently affectionate nicknames, end quote. So one example of this was Tom Reed, who was the familiar of a cunning woman and accused witch, Bessie Dunlop. I don't know what Tom Reed was, what kind of animal, but certainly a very down-to-earth name for a supernatural being. And two more examples of two more familiars of the 17th century, which Jane Wallace, were Grizzle and Gritty Gut. And again, I'm not sure what they were, but they had those rather unextraordinary names, or not, they're still rather extraordinary. They're not, they're not pompous or divine-sounding. Again, all rather down-to-earth. So in British accounts, there were three different ways relating to how a witch would first encounter their familiar. So the first way in which this could happen was that the spirit would appear in front of the individual while they were going about their daily activities in their home or outdoors. 
So there's an example given of one Joan Prentice from Essex, England. She gave this story while being interrogated for witchcraft in 1589. She claimed that she was, quote, alone in her chamber and sitting upon a low stool preparing herself to bedward when her familiar first appeared to her, end quote. Another manner in which the familiar spirit appears to the magical practitioner is that they can be given to a person by another individual who's maybe a family member or who is even a more powerful spirit. An alleged witch named Margaret Lay from Liverpool claimed in 1667 that she was given her familiar spirit by her mother when she died. Well, another woman named Joan Willemot in 1618, told of a mysterious figure who she only referred to as her master, quote, willed her to open her mouth and he would blow into her a fairy, which should do her good, and that she opened her mouth, and that presently after blowing, there came out of her mouth a spirit which stood upon the ground in the shape and form of a woman, end quote. That one's pretty wild. <laughs> so the third way in which a witch could in which a witch could encounter a familiar is if they were having difficulty prior to the appearance of the familiar, who would then offer to help them in some way. So Emma Wilby, this historian, says, quote, Their problems were primarily rooted in the struggle for physical survival, the lack of food, of money, bereavement, sickness, loss of livelihood, and so on, end quote. And it was the familiar who would appear to them in their time of need and offer a way to help them survive using their magical powers. I did want to share the story of a famed familiar, or rather a famous dog who people of the time thought might be a supernatural being. And the name of this dog is Boy. I've seen this spelled two different ways, B-O-Y and B-O-Y-E. Now, Boy belonged to Prince Rupert. Prince Rupert was born in 1619 and died in 1682. He was a German soldier, an admiral, a scientist, sportsman, colonial governor, and amateur artist. So he was most known as a commander of the cavalry during the English Civil War. So Boy was given to Prince Rupert when the latter was imprisoned in a fortress during the Thirty Years' War. There was an Englishman who had grown concerned about Rupert's plight, and I don't know a lot about the English Civil War, but my understanding is that it was a conflict between parliamentarians and royalists who were fighting over how England should be governed, and Prince Rupert was fighting on behalf of the royalists. So there was an Englishman who was worried about Rupert's plight and gave him an animal to keep him company during his confinement, and this animal was Boy. Boy was, at the time, a rare breed of white hunting poodle. There is artwork that depicts him, if you want to take a look. He does look like a big hunting poodle. <laughs> so this poodle was sometimes called Puddle, for poodle, but was more famously known as Boy, even though it might have been a female. So as we'll learn, Boy played an important role in the sort of imagery associated with Prince Rupert, imagery of the cavalry during the English Civil War. And eventually, there came to be this circulation of propaganda that Boy possessed dark powers and was, in fact, a dog witch. 
The boy accompanied his master from 1642 to 1644 during the English Civil War. Rupert himself was an iconic royalist cavalier, and he was the subject of parliamentarian propaganda. Boy was often at Rupert's side in battle and was featured heavily in this propaganda to the point where he was suspected of being a witch's familiar. So there are these accounts of Boy's abilities, some even suggesting that he was the devil in disguise. Now, of course, all of this propaganda was coming from the other side of the conflict, from the side of the parliamentarians. <laughs> so then, on the flip side, royalist satirists and comedians, parodists, they mocked these parliamentarian attitudes, and they would satirize these superstitions on the part of the parliamentarians, and they would try to lend credence to what they thought of as absolutely ridiculous claims. John Cleveland was one of these satirists, and he claimed that boy was Prince Rupert's shape-shifting familiar and was indeed of demonic origins. Other satirists suggested that he was a lady who had been transformed into a white dog. They purported that he was able to find hidden treasure, was invulnerable to attack, could catch bullets fired at Rupert in his mouth, and could prophesize as well as another 16th century soothsayer named Mother Shipton. These were likely actual beliefs held by people on one side of the conflict who fed into this legend of Prince Rupert as this great soldier and commander. And then these were simultaneously, quote, beliefs being perpetuated by the other side mockingly and to, I think, strike up fear of Prince Rupert and his cavalry on the part of the royalists. So what we do know, because history doesn't tell us whether Boy possessed these supernatural abilities or was prophesizing or magic in any way, what we do know is that the royalist soldiers loved Boy and they spoke of him endearingly. They even promoted him as their adopted mascot to the rank of Sergeant Major General. And apparently, he would cock his leg as though to pee when he heard the name of John Pym, leader of the Parliamentarian forces. So he did sleep in Prince Rupert's bed, and he was apparently fed roast beef and capon breast by Charles I himself. So no matter what is true regarding his magical abilities, this dog was beloved in his time. He died in the Battle of Marston Moor in 1644. He was tied up at Royalist Camp, but escaped and chased after Rupert, where he was killed during the ensuing fighting. So he's prominently depicted in woodcut scenes of the battle, lying upside down and dead. And that is the story of Boy, who may or may not have been a witch's familiar. Another way in which witches and animals are closely related has been the use of animals in ritual sacrifice or the use of animal parts in the pronouncement or conjuring of spells. Now, this is not something that I know a lot about. It's something that I've seen heavily depicted in popular culture in American Horror Story Season 3 with the coven comes to mind. Certain depictions of especially Caribbean acts of voodoo or possession in popular culture that I'm sure are not flattering or truthful depictions of witchcraft comes to mind in terms of the use of animals in the conjuring of spells. A lot of goats and chickens and bloodletting and all of that stuff. I don't know a lot about it, but 
What I was able to find is that to this day, those who identify as Wicca or pagan use animal parts in ritual. There are some practices of Wicca that forbid this, and I'm sure that there are personal preferences on the part of practicing Wiccans as to whether or not they use animal parts in their rituals. But ultimately what I found is that today, when the use of animals or animal parts comes into play, it's important that they are gathered humanely and ethically, that you know where they came from, how an animal was killed, whether it was humane. It's something that I've never really considered. I mean, I, you know, I went through a period of my life when I was at tech school where I was an adamant vegetarian because I thought it was wrong to, to eat cows and, and pigs and chickens because these were animals that I would be learning how to treat and save medically. So I was a pretty adamant vegetarian. I'm not any longer for a number of reasons. It's something that I'd like to get back into you in future, I think, when I'm a little bit healthier and able to dedicate myself to vegetarianism or even veganism in a healthy way. It never occurred to me that this is a problem. Like to this day, I still try to source all of my meats sustainably from wonderful, sustainable butchers and seafood shops in Toronto. But what if you're a Wicca and also an animal lover? Maybe even a vegan? How does that come into play in the practice of your religion or rituals. So what I'm going to do now is go through a list of all the different kinds of animals that have been used in witchcraft. Animals have come to have different meanings as familiars or as omens. So I'm going to go through just a list of those different animals and what they mean within this realm of historical and more modern witchcraft. Starting with the black hen. So in Germany, in the case of illness, the hen was closed behind black doors and needles were pierced in its heart before the rising of the sun and then thrown away. Now the hare, as linked to witches, it was said that to meet a hare in the morning was considered bad luck. It was believed that a hare fixed to the lintel of the door would take away from the inhabitants every evil influence. The rabbit, on the other hand, is associated with fertility, magic, and sexual energy. The butterfly could be considered an animal of bad omen because it was as butterflies, disguised as butterflies, that witches took to steal cream and butter. It's interesting. Now the horse was a status symbol, a symbol of wealth in the animal occult linked to all kinds of demonic creatures, including witches, as it was told that the devil had a foot similar to the horse's leg in which the novices were branded. The goat. It is told that the devil was in the habit of presenting to the Sabbath in the guise of a goat from the black fleece. For this reason, the presence of a black goat in a stable ensured the safety of all the animals. Owls that shout in front of the window of a house announce the death of one of its inhabitants. They drove armies of ghosts and are allowed to protect the men from witches, evil spirits, and the evil eye. So the black dog, which had on its collar shapes and magical symbols drawn onto it to meet it even in dreams, was a bad omen. And that's something that we've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast for sure. Although dogs are associated with death in European legends, 
They are also symbolic of loyalty and the bonds of friendship. Now pigs. Witches can worship and assume the appearance of the sow to sow discord. And for this reason, it is dangerous to meet a pig without its master. Black cat. Black cat is one of the major magic animals that a witch can turn into. In daylight, bewitched cats were harmless, but in the night it was said to be better not to trust one. It was easy to find a witch. You could just hurt a cat in the night, and the next day you would find the same point of contact, the same wound, on a woman or man. Hey, I absolutely do not recommend harming black cats. Tonight, Halloween, PSA, I'm sure you know this, but if you own a black cat or any kind of cat, do not let them out tonight. People are mean and cruel and awful, and we know as animal professionals that cats who are left out on Halloween have a high chance of being hurt, of being taken away, of being tormented. Just leave them inside. And to all those sickos out there who would hurt a cat on Halloween, especially a black cat, because it's funny, you are all terrible people. Black cats are just so near and dear to my heart. My parents had this beautiful Himalayan Persian mix named Luna, who now belongs to my very good friend named Audric. And I just love when they sit in the dark and all you see is their glowing green eyes and otherwise they melt into the darkness. Black cats are special, so leave them be. And if you ever get the chance to adopt, maybe consider adopting a black cat. Their adoption rates are lower. The sad truth is that people don't think that they're associated with black magic anymore but apparently they don't take as brilliant pictures. And so in the age of social media, these cats find it harder to find a forever home. So if you're able to welcome a black cat into your life, all the better. Okay, that was my PSA. Let's, uh, let's get back to it. The raven. Even the Babylonians believed that the raven had the gift of prophecy. It was believed that demons and witches turned into ravens and were considered a sign of bad omen. Their blood and their feathers can be used in packs with the devil. The snake has always been a symbol of power, especially the ancestral snake, a source of knowledge. In many cultures, they're tied to a cycle of life, death, and rebirth. In the Ozarks, there's a connection between snakes and babies. And in Scotland, a snake emerging from its hole signified the beginning of spring. And finally, bats, considered one of the favorite pets of witches. They were said to harm people and animals. To keep them away, you would string dead bats to the doors of your home. Interesting. Some of the many ways in which these different animals are used and what they have come to symbolize within the practice of witchcraft across different cultures. I wanted to wrap up with this interesting BuzzFeed article that I found about a man named Richard Osmond, and he is a poet who has a website and a Twitter account where he's been looking through historical records of witch trials from 16th and 17th century England. And he tweets about and writes about these trials or the kind of surreal, sad, and even funny slices of life that are evident in these trial documents. I kind of gave this very rapid overview of all the ways in which different animals can be used in witchcraft, whether they represent familiars or parts of spells, or their appearance represents like an omen or a prophecy. 
So we have come to associate witches, I think especially female witches, with these certain kinds of animals who maybe they themselves have a bad rap. Cats, ravens, spiders, bats. The witch is tied to the natural world, is tied to life and death and movements of the sun and moon and animals as part of that natural world. But this gentleman, Osmond, he says that back during the time of witch trials, a woman, and almost always a woman as opposed to a man, a woman who had unusually deep ties to the animals around her, yes, we associate that tie with witchcraft, but a woman having that tie with animals could also lead to those accusations of witchcraft. So it's hard to know which came first. So Osmond found evidence of women, a lot of the time old or lonely women, who spoke to their cats as friends, as familiars, not in the magical sense, but in the sense that my cat is my familiar and my friend. And their speaking with their cats aroused suspicion that actually led to them being accused of witchcraft. Quote, a lot of the witches who had cats and were accused of using them to perform dark magic were social outcasts, misfits, some probably suffering mental health problems or suffering old age or poverty. Quintessential crazy cat ladies, basically. With a folk belief that witches talk to demons in the shape of animals, you can see how the way lonely old women talk to their cats might arouse suspicion. End quote. That was a really poignant thing for me, like... <laughs> I always make this joke that if I had lived during the time of the witch trials, I probably would have been accused and convicted of being a witch in all the ways in which I'm, like, not content to fit the mold of Puritan or Victorian womanhood, you know, speaking my mind, so-called hysteria, being emotional, being a person who questions rules why things are the way they are. I always joke that for all those reasons, I probably would have been tried and accused of witchcraft. But it's really sad to me that these women who whose only crime maybe was being lonely or odd or old or sick and seeking the comfort of a cat or a dog or a crow, that that act of loving and trusting animals and depending on them sometimes more than humans that that could lead to the accusation or conviction of witchcraft. It's really sad. But I did want to end, hopefully, <laughs> end on a bit of a happier note. So this same gentleman, Richard Osmond, he does tell some kind of funny stories, these very sort of light-hearted anecdotes that came out of these trials. And yes, these trials are horrific. And to think that people looked at these anecdotes, which are so silly today, and saw in them the presence of, like, dark magic and Satan, it's really disturbing. And I think the trials were used to attack marginalized people within English and early American societies. It's all horrible. But some of these lighter stories about animals and familiars that came to light during these trials... That's how I'd like to end this podcast, and, and hopefully they give you a little smile, as they did for me. So this is a quote directly from Osmond. He says, quote, 
One of my favorite witch stories involves a cat. Two witches, a mother and daughter, were working this complicated revenge spell that involves burying a stolen glove in the garden and boiling a wool mattress in blood. The final act of the spell was to rub the bloody mattress and a handkerchief on their cat, whose name was Rutterkin. Instead of flying off to harm the Earl of Rutland as the witches intended, Rutterkin just mewed and did nothing. Which is exactly what a grumpy cat would do after being rubbed with a wet hanky. End quote. So now what I'm going to do is just, in rapid succession, share with you some of the names and purported physical manifestations of some familiars of witches who were on trial in the 1600s and 1700s. Yeah, all of this has this terrible dark undertone, and it's a terrible time in our history, but some of these really did make me laugh. And if you want to seek out this guy's website, again, his name is Richard Osmond. They've even included illustrations of what some of these familiars might have looked like, and some of them in name and appearance are truly ridiculous. So here we go. 15 minutes after the devil left, a fat white dog named Jamara with sandy spots and no legs would appear. So Jamara was followed by another imp, Vinegar Tom. He was a long-legged greyhound with the head of an ox. Elizabeth Stile, also known as Rockingham, kept a rat named Philip and fed it on her own blood. The spirit, which the Throckmorton children called the Thing, appeared in many forms, but most often as a brown chicken. A witch kept her cat Satan in a comfy pot of wool. She needed the wool, so turned him into a toad, which didn't need which didn't need wool. And those are all direct anecdotes, testimonies from these trials that Osmond has found and put together and illustrated. And they are just there's something so surreal and frivolous about them. So I wanted to end on that air of the frivolous rather than hopefully anything too heavy. This does bring us to the end of this special Halloween episode of Are You Afraid of the Bark? Special in that it premieres today, Halloween. I hope that your Halloween is exactly as full of candy or fun or spooky as you want it to be. I hope that your Halloween is exactly as you want it to be. Thank you very much for joining me for listening to this episode. See you again in one week's time, a subject as yet to be determined, but if you have any ideas, drop me a line. Let me know what you would like to hear about. As always, I can be reached at areyouafraidofthebarkpodcast at gmail.com on Facebook at AYAOTB Podcast, on Instagram at Afraid of the Bark Podcast, and on Twitter at Afraid of the Bark. Thank you so much for joining me. I love you, spooky listeners, you spooky babies. I don't know. I need to come up with a nickname for you, my listeners. I love you. I hope you have a great Halloween, that you have more Mars bars than candy corn in your buckets at the end of the night. And most of all, I sincerely hope that you have sweet dreams tonight. Thanks for listening. <laughs>